0: Okay, so this is Autism in the Wilds, Season 1, Episode 9, and the topic is IEP accommodations. Um, How much is enough to ask for and how much might be too much to ask for, if that's even a real thing. And we have a group of parents, both a culmination of moms and dads, and I will even make note that two of our parents that are on our panel today are former teachers. So this, I think, will be an interesting topic. First and foremost, I'm just going to put my personal struggles out there for the world to start, and you guys can piggyback on this particular topic if you should like, or we can decide on another one. But one of the challenges that I have had is Caleb is 10 years old and he's in now 82% general education and the rest he has actually spent in a resource room that's for special education instruction. And one of the struggles that I've had is as field expert on Caleb, I know that there are a lot of accommodations that are beneficial to him that would be probably help his teacher be more successful and be able to grab, you know, I guess gain more traction should some of these accommodations be in place. However, my fear and anxiety is always, okay, if I ask for this, because it would be um, something that would help Caleb motor through some of this stuff faster, is this going to require too much of your time, too much energy to be able to enforce or accommodate in the classroom? And now you're becoming quote unquote, that problem parent, the problem parent that has a child in special education with an IEP that's asking for the moon and it's going to detract from all of the 27 other students that are in this classroom. So that has been one of the struggles that I have had. And I will be honest, you know, we've left a school district because it was a small school district. And I really felt like if I was to put my foot down and really be an advocate for him, there would be negative ramifications for my child and potentially other children within that small school district that I was not willing to take the risk of. So we moved over to The school district where his dad lives, within the district because I felt like in that bigger school district, you're protected a little bit more, you're insulated a little bit more, so that you're not going to be targeted. So I'm trying, I'm testing out the waters of being a stronger advocate and really insisting on some things, but it's really hard for me. It's a, it's an area where I'm not comfortable. So I'm excited about this particular podcast topic because I'm curious to see what other people's perspectives are. You know, how you know have you felt like it's pointless? Have you felt like it? was worth it. So where is everybody on this whole topic of asking for enough, but also being realistic in terms of what the teacher's capacity is? And is this going to be too much to ask? And would it detract from the other 27 kids or 28 kids that are in these classrooms?
1: Hi, I'm Tanya, and I have an eight-year-old who's in third grade with autism. And I kind of come from the perspective that he, and I'm also a former second grade teacher, I thought that his needs were too great for his teacher to be able to accommodate on her own. And I felt like it would've a lot. And I was thinking if I had my child in my class, I thought it would be just too much for his teacher while teaching the other 20, some 25 kids in this class. And so that's why I fought really hard last year and this year to try to get my son an aide to be able to help with that because I felt like his needs would be too great, too much for his teacher to be able to really help. And so it was a fight. And I felt, I feel like sometimes the school district is reactive and not proactive. And it's like, wait and see how much your child fails before they are willing to do something. Oh boy. How no many on that Yes. Yeah. Yes. For sure. It took all of last year and then finally this year and he finally does have that support, but it was a fight and it was documentation of how often my child failed, how many phone calls I got from the school or texts and stuff about my child struggling. I was like, you know, this is not working. We need to actually put something in place so that he can stay at school and have a chance of being successful. Because at that time he wasn't, I was getting called all the time or texts and I was like, you know, we're being re- reactive here. We're reacting, but we're not doing anything to be proactive. And so That's really good
2: feedback. Yeah.
1: Love it. And so I feel like school districts, a lot of times they want to, they, I mean, I understand sometimes wanting to see if a child can do it without, because it costs the district money to do it without. But there's a point where you're like, this isn't working when your child's getting suspended as a special needs child. And my child had hit that and it was really hard and I really had a fight and I really had to go above the school's head and I had, I had to contact the assistant superintendent of special education and to really make things happen.
2: I'm David. My daughter Morgan is 10 and she's on the spectrum. She's in fifth grade now. We switched school districts last year so it was hard to get a read initially on in our first IEP meeting at the new school. At least that's how I felt. We were talking about this uh, prior to going live here about you know the used car salesman thing but I do have a sales background. Well the guy guidance I would give anybody going into this situation is something, it's a technique in sales, which is don't offer the objection to the person already. So Holly, in your instance, don't go in and say, I know you're overwhelmed, but because you've just allowed them to say, yeah, I am overwhelmed. Yeah, I know this yeah. might be a struggle, but let them tell you because we don't know... Any, from any year to year what that person's actual capacity is. And, and it's still, you can still do it diplomatically. You could still do it in a way that doesn't corner them or anything to say, we really feel like this would be the best for Morgan. What are your thoughts on this? How could we accomplish that? And you and I spoke about this. This particular district had a program in which they were letting individuals go into the classrooms with the kids that needed it. And they went away from the program we just found out about a year ago. So at this IEP meeting coming up, I am definitely gonna ask, can we go back to that? And they can tell me why they walked away from it. And then I'll go back and say, well, from year to year, it seems like the needs would be different and maybe there's more of a need for it this year. And I'll let them tell me what their perspective is. I'm not going to them the ejection At the same time, I'm going to keep diplomatically pushing for it. The thing with Morgan is, as opposed to what some have told here, she'll fall through the cracks. She's not going to be disruptive to anybody. She's just going to disappear which could probably make it convenient for a teacher because she's not going to tell them that she's in any kind of distress. She's not gonna be disruptive. In fact, she might, from that standpoint, appear to be the model student. She just will be completely disengaged, not learning anything and not participating. So that's why we need somebody to advocate for her. And you know, that starts with us. She's in resource class two hours a day, which is great, but those other hours, we feel like she's slipping through the cracks. And so there were instances in the past where I went to quote unquote battle, but in the course of the battle, you know, I just, I guess it was one of those things where I own like, here's the pain in the ass coming back again, you know, and, and they, th- they, they appreciated the fact that I wasn't assaulting them, their character, their personality. This is just, you understand if your kid was in this circumstance, you would be doing the very thing that I'm doing right now.
3: Hi, I'm Christine. I have an 11 year old autistic son. He's in sixth grade and uh, probably been dealing with IEP stuff since he was in school. I'm also a former educator. And so I know I come at this from a couple of different perspectives. Ultimately, I think what I keep in mind when we do an IEP is that while I am the subject matter expert on my son, I am maybe not necessarily the subject matter expert on educating my child. I'm a secondary teacher. I'm not an elementary school teacher. Um, Early childhood development is not something that I am totally versed in. So I do need to respect the fact that I am speaking to experts in their field. And while they may not be an expert on my child, they've been in a lot more elementary school classrooms than I've been in. So I want to make sure that I honor that and I trust that. I also know that there is a difference between the IEP goals that schools can write. The parameters for those are fairly limited. However, the accommodations that can be made in a classroom are almost unlimited. So, again, we, we all need to be at least become knowledgeable about how an IEP is written and what the parameters are that you can put into a, an IEP in terms of goals, and then what are the accommodations that you can ask for. When I say that, let me give you an example. Typically, there are um, educational goals, and that's going to be your math, your reading, your writing, all of those. And schools have benchmarks that all students need to meet, and so they may. Make IEP goals based on those benchmarks. And those are kind of unchangeable. They have to write those goals for how they write those goals. However, accommodations that they can make In terms of, can my son, who needs to wiggle a little bit, sit on one of those bouncy balls as his seat in the classroom? That's an absolutely reasonable accommodation, regardless of how the other kids in the class are going to respond to that. Is every kid in the class going to want a bouncy ball to sit on? Yeah, they might, and that might cause an issue for the teacher, but you know what? I'm sorry, this is what my child needs, and therefore I'm going to fight for my child to have that. And the teacher then can work on the classroom management to make sure That this doesn't become an issue for other kids. Does my um, son need a one on one assistant part of the day? Yes, he does. Can that assistant also help other kids in the classroom when my son's needs are a little bit? Yes, sure. So we can make those kinds of accommodations work. When we ask ourselves how much is too much to ask, I don't think there's too much to ask. You just need to understand what are the parameters around what can you ask for and what can't you ask for. Can you ask that your child have a one on one teacher? Yeah, probably not. That's not going to happen. Is that too much to ask for? Hell yeah. That just can't happen. They can't staff that. But can they make other accommodations? Absolutely. I also think that we as parents have a responsibility to be as knowledgeable as we can be. And if that means that you understand your rights as a parent, your child's rights, that you should know those rights. When you have a special needs child, it becomes your responsibility not only to be an expert on them as a person, but also their rights because you're going to be their advocate. So when you watch into an IEP meeting, come armed. Come armed with knowledge. Don't walk in and not have done your due diligence in learning about what are the laws, what are special education laws. I always tell parents that are kind of new to this journey is you need to educate yourself, but understand that you can just simply say my child has the right to a free and appropriate public education in the least restrictive environment. And so as long as you keep that kind of as your mantra and you understand what, what that means in the things that you can ask for, you become a better advocate, and then you become better at knowing what is enough for your child, what is too much, and I'm doing that with quotes. I don't know if that's necessarily the right question to ask is, is there too much that we can ask for, no, not if it is going to provide your child that free and appropriate education in the least restrictive environment. And as long as we can make that happen, there's not too much that you can ask. I mean, you can't ask for, you know, Barney to be your child's teacher. That might be a little bit too much, but if you're educated and knowledgeable and are working as a good advocate, I don't think there's too much you can ask.
0: A couple things, too, that you touched on is one, educating yourself. I have a lot of families that are really frustrated with what their child is not getting. And, you know, they on social social media is really awesome. And then it can be also fairly negative. And, you know, I have a lot of families calling and saying, you know, I'm just so frustrated. I'm reading about this person's posting about like this amazing IEP and all these accommodations. And it's like their child has this Mercedes Benz of public education. And, you know, I can't even simply get an extra 15 minutes of speech or occupational therapy added to my child's IEP. And it's really frustrating. But I do feel like what you said is kind of the key, knowing what your rights are and how to advocate it and knowing being able to use the correct language to be able to say exactly what you're saying, a free and appropriate public education in the least restrictive environment and knowing what your rights are. So you can have a basis of saying I am not asking for too much. That is the key. So being upset that somebody else knew what their rights were, how to document and demonstrate why their kid needed that. I understand the frustration, but you know, we can through educating ourselves. The other thing that you Tanya and Christine were talking about right before we went live was you guys are in the same school district. You're farther ahead, Christine, than you are Tanya, but being able to communicate in your autism tribe with other parents that have had successful experiences that are knowledgeable about what to ask for, how to ask for, I think is huge because you guys are not the only ones here. So Christine, you were just saying, I know exactly what you, where you're at. I know what classroom you're in, I can tell you, here's what you might try, how to go about doing it, how to document it. And we have had other instances of other families pairing up in other districts to provide that support and coaching, if you will, of what to ask for. And I think that there's a lot of benefit to that. Harm, before we started recording, you made the comment and because you, uh, your family, and of course you, John, you have children that are lower functioning or in special education, hundred percent of their day. But you know, what does that look like in terms, do you just kind of give up or oh, we, we were talking, about, it's like going in and fighting in a, or dickering over a car in terms of what you're asking for. Tell us about where's your time best spent when you're asking for things for your child that might be in a hundred percent special education. If you could walk us through some of the things, you know, what you found, things that were helpful, things that you found were not worth the fight, maybe share some of those experiences with us if you could.
4: I'm John and I actually was really interested on you guys' take because I know with super being low functioning, he's in the class all the time in the special needs class. And what I really saw was sitting in his IEPs initially was that they had to focus on his academics, right? And and Christine, hearing you say that, that makes sense, right? I mean, they want the kids are there to learn academics. I always advocated for Cooper. I wanted him to have more social integration. I wanted him to be able to do things, interact with his, express his wants and needs and things like that. And I'm not sure, honestly, if his classroom, his teachers were equipped to do that. Cooper, he actually can read and he can do simple math. And things like that. And I never would have thought that he could have done those things. But where I feel like he needs the help is expressing the fact that his tooth hurts, things like that. And that's where I've been trying to push the whole time is trying to say, hey, I want him to have expressive language where he'll let me know when he wants something and he'll voice it to someone else. So I guess in, in my mind, I'm not so much worried about the academics as I am him being able to express and interact when I'm not there in a situation to where he can express what he wants or what he needs. And if you get to know him, yeah, it's fine. Utterances and pointing and things like that are fine, but I want to be able to come up to the lay person and say, yeah, hey, I want this or my tooth hurts or my back hurts. You know, I I guess that's the thing I've always kind of been pushing for. And like I say, I'm not an educator and hearing Christine and and Tanya talk about it, I guess I have a better understanding now of what the school is supposed to be there for and also what it's not supposed to be there for. How did you guys because you have the same situation i don't care
0: if my daughter can count coins now she's never i shouldn't say she's never but my expectation is that she wouldn't go to the store by herself to pay for something so i could care less if she can count dimes and nickels and quarters it, my push was always communication and they wanted to pull the ipad away from her at some point which is how she communicates um so that's kind of been our fight asking for more speech which we didn't get we pay for outside speech services have for years and i i understand now too it was interesting to hear you guys because now I know why that's always their focus for I think us with lower functioning kiddos it's more about being able to communicate and
3: socialize and you know the other stuff kind of gets goes on the back burner. So I don't want to say that you can't ask for things like that. Cameron my son has social goals. They originally I think they're changing over the terminology because we're just coming up on his three year review and when I got the IEP meeting request they said okay here's the areas that we're going to do the evaluations in because every three years They do evaluations and they didn't mark the adaptive goals because that's typically what those social goals have been termed. And this drives me crazy because they change it. So I get the school psychologist calling me up saying, Hey, you marked the adaptive goals. And I said, Well, yes, Cameron has adaptive goals. We're going to continue to work on these adaptive goals. She's like, Oh, well, we're changing that to social emotional goals. And I'm like, Well, I don't care what y'all call them, (laughs) but. we're going to make sure that he continues to have these adaptive social emotional I don't care what you want to call it goals on his IEP because I do want those things school is a perfect place to learn some of those things but again I also understand that the staff that they have at school may not be experts in the types of social emotional goals that I need my son to achieve and so again that that's where I say I need to make sure that I become knowledgeable about who's on staff, what resources, what staff does a school district employ, what then services can they provide within the school district to provide those. A speech therapist, absolutely. If you want your child, John, Shelley, to have more speech, absolutely fight for that because that is a part of the school services that they can provide. And if you have to fight for that, if you literally need to say, you know what? I don't need eight academic goals. You make the speech component be the bigger component and you just require that speech therapist to have eight speech goals. And you make sure that that speech therapist is meeting the benchmarks that they have set up. You help decide what those benchmarks are. We provide our speech therapists at Cameron School with our outside speech therapist goals and say, these are the things that they're working on. These are the benchmarks that we're meeting outside of school. There's absolutely no reason why you can't be meeting this at school also. So again, I I always just come back to being very knowledgeable, providing them with as much information as possible and holding the school accountable for the things that you want. So when I say that they have parameters for their goals, they do. A lot of it's gonna be academic. However, if they provide occupational therapy in the schools, which they do, if they provide speech therapy in the schools, which they do, you hold them to that That is what you want the majority of your IEP to look like if that's what your child needs. And again, we're all the subject matter experts on our kid and what they need. And you can fight to get more of that than the academic goals if you feel those are not the goals that you you want or need for your child. That's not part of their appropriate education.
1: My son is third grade and he has severe anxiety. And right now, while we do what we can and his anxiety manifests itself in behaviors. And while we are working really hard on the outside of school to try to manage that, right now, his anxiety is hindering his ability to learn. And so my son really needs to develop being able to identify his feelings and those coping skills, because right now he doesn't have them very well or a very good grasp on them and it prevents him from being able to learn in the classroom. So for goals for him, I want the school to be able to work with him on those coping skills because he's not able to learn when he's not able to cope due to his anxiety and he had the meltdown. And then I'm getting a call in the school. But my son kind of can throw you for a loop because my son's very, very verbal. And so I think sometimes people expect more because he is so verbal. Like he definitely still has those social emotional challenges, the anxiety that he's having to learn how to cope with and deal with. But I think sometimes people expect him to be able to do more than he can because he can verbalize himself pretty well. And... It throws people's expectations off. And so the school still needs to be able to have those adaptive goals because that's what's hindering his learning. He has the ability to do the academic part. But when his anxiety is so high that he just can't cope, he's not learning. He's not able to learn. He's not able to pay attention when his anxiety is through the roof. And so he needs those goals to help him learn how to handle it and to develop those coping skills.
2: So I'm going to take a little bit of a detour here, try to get us back uh, to the road eventually here. So I'm glad what you said about educate. It sounds so odd obvious, educate yourself. But I walk in there thinking you, you guys probably are the experts on all this stuff. So you should offer this up to me. And then I could see the fact that, well, they're going to offer up as little as they have to. It's just human nature. And I guess my parallel to that, and I swear to God, I'm not going to go too far afield, but for a reference, there's so many social agendas out there that we've seen throughout the last couple of years that are so new that have just been forced to the forefront. And then it's like, okay, well, we're here, everybody needs to get on board. And I'm kind of like, can we have just a moment to process us here before I think about this. I mean, I know you want me to be on board with this, but I just, it's really new to me and I can't just wrap my mind around it yet. Give me a few minutes. So I'm thinking that for educators, teachers, this type of thing, the incorporation of more and more special needs kids into the school, they're all human and they're all going to react differently. And they're all going to wrap their arms around it in different fashions and different rates, incorporating it differently because we're dealing lo and behold with human beings. So to me, that's what I thought when you said as much information, as much education as I need to make them more comfortable. I kind of have been walking in there. Can you make me feel more comfortable with this process? Because I haven't educated myself. And the thing, but this has kind of flipped the script. My job is to make them feel more comfortable with it. Well, yeah, the state actually does offer this. It does, uh, this is what it says that you should and can do. I understand that might be new for you. Uh, It might be different, but it literally says right here that you can. So is there a way we can get there? And so I think that's why it was so important. I
3: don't even know if if it's making them more more comfortable. It's, it definitely streamlines the process. If everybody goes in kind of with the same amount of information, or at least you come in starting with something, you know, and there's a lot to know. I mean, there is a ton to know there's IEPs. That's typically your educational goal. I mean, it stands for an individualized education plan. So even in the, in the terminology, that means that's going to be the education plan. They also have 504s. Those are accommodations that are different than the education plan. There is BIPs, a behavior intervention plan. That can be something as simple as when my child has a meltdown in the classroom, what is the process for which the school is going to address that? And that's not they call mom and have mom come pick him up. I think there's sometimes a fear that if my child has a behavior plan, that that must somehow mean that my kid is a behavior kid. Like he's a troubled kid. He's a naughty kid and that is not the label that it puts on it. It means that when my son's behavior and in our family, behavior is language, he's trying to tell us something, good, bad, or whatever, that that means that they now have a plan in place to help him manage that behavior. So we don't look at it as something negative. So Cameron does, Cameron has a behavior plan. When PE, because PE is a huge trigger for my kid, when PE gets overwhelming because his heart rate is up, he's sweating. He's hot. He's running around. He's crazy. He's got all this sensory input stuff, and his brain cannot manage it all, and he will flip out, like we've never seen him flip out before, I'm like, you know what? It is the simplest answer. We just have his assistant give him a three minute break, like take him out of the basketball game, the kickball game, the whatever it is. He goes, he just slowly walks around. He brings down his heart rate, brings down his breathing. He like wipes the sweat from his brow and then he can go back into the situation. And that's our, that's our BIP. That's our behavior plan. Like seriously, it's that simple. So sometimes it's, again, to me, it's having the knowledge to know that a behavior plan doesn't mean that your kid is a bad kid. It just means that in my world, behavior is language, it's telling us something and we need to have accommodations and a plan to help Cameron manage that behavior. We listen to what it's saying and we respond back with what he needs. So again, knowing all the acronyms, IEP, BIP, 504, all of that stuff, knowing what that is and what it can do for your child and that you have a right to ask for these things, it just arms you. And whether or not that makes the teachers feel comfortable, but makes you feel more comfortable for me in my situation, it's always just made me feel prepared. I go into these IEP meetings with so much less anxiety because I'm prepared. I would never give a speech in front of, you know, a group of people on a topic without preparing, without having notes, without knowing what I'm going to talk about. Don't go into an IEP meeting without some prior knowledge. And if you don't have that, like Holly said, find the people in your tribe, at your school, find, even if they're not at your school, find somebody in your tribe, hook up to somebody who has even more knowledge than you have, who can lead you in that direction, who can help you come prepared your IEP meeting? It makes it a lot easier. No, I will say that, you know, I'm going to piggyback on that and then we'll wrap up this particular podcast.
0: By and large, I feel like the most successful I ha- thing I have seen families do is to connect with other families that have IEPs, that have kiddos with whether it's whether it's in that same school district or even better within that same school, because I will also tell you too, I mean, I am a real big advocate of, you know, what a PTG or PTO, um, whatever you call it in your neck of the woods. Those are great. But I also am a big advocate of having your special needs PTG or PTO, because I will tell you is, is that our world and how we, you know, how we have to go about educating our children in public education is different when you have a neurotypical child. And, you know, we here sitting at this table can all say, you know, large, Yeah, you're right, because we have our neurotypical kids and we have it's different. It is different. So we cannot have a PTG that's representing, you know, the population of neurotypical kids without there being a parent teacher organization for special needs kids as well. I really honestly think that every school should have that. And here's what the benefit of that is, too. You're finding your tribe within your school, within your school district so that you can collaborate. You know what I mean? I am very invested, David, in what your IEP is going to look like and even how you are having someone come in to do kind of a classroom observation. I want, even though we go to different elementary schools, I want to know about that because that is going to help me be educated and kind of know where you're going to. Also too, if it can help you by me at, hey, you know what, those same, we have similar children, that's going to benefit my child too. I will start pushing for those things and having those courageous conversations at my elementary school because you know what, I think the more people that are connected, that are fighting the same thing, we can have a stronger voice and say, you know what? Hey, we need things to be different. Even with you guys, where you have your lower functioning children, I I think we need to be looking at what overall our goals are. I don't give a, I'm with you. I don't give a crap if my kid can count money because I'm always going to count their money. But if you can collaboratively get a population of parents together, that are going to say, this is stupid. You know what? All of us are going to have a courageous conversation with you and say, this is really what we're looking for. We want more mm-hmm. speech, communication services, and less so of some of this other that is not going to serve our children that are nonverbal. Yeah, my well. kid doesn't need to know about ancient civilizations. Yes, they I need did. to know yes. about you know how to express themselves when. Correct. That's exactly it. And those courageous conversations, which I truly believe why I'm a real big proponent of, you know, find your tribe, find your tribe of people, and then be strategic about one voice is one voice. But when you start pulling those collectively together and saying, hey, you know what, this isn't working for us anymore, then you're not the problem parent, the one that's always complaining about everything. Hey, guess what? Um, There's going to be 25 parents that are going to be here having this courageous conversation about the fact that this is no longer working for us. Well, and then you can also use the, if you have that tribe, you
3: can say there's a precedence that's been set. Mm -hmm. If those who come before set a precedent, then you know it can be done. And so it's a lot harder for the district to then say, oh, we can't or we don't do that. You can say,
0: oh, but you do. Yes. And like what you're saying, they've taken something away from our district that, you know what, who made that decision? Because you know what? I'm me, you're you're, your family and I'm my family. And I know probably half a dozen other families that are in our district that are saying, "Ah, we're going to go circle back to that whole decision as to why this was deemed to not be working, we're going to circle back around to that. And again, there's power in numbers. I really, truly believe there's power in numbers. All right. Well, we're going to wrap up this particular episode. Thank you guys for joining me today. And we will see you again for another Autism in the Wild podcast series. And that's it for now. If you want to be notified of our next podcast release, be sure to hit subscribe. And just remember, we're all in this together. So find your tribe and hold them tight.